Hello, my fan friends. Welcome to another Rahalastapa. It's another transatlantic one. This time with the wonderful Michael Ian Black. You'll have seen him in all sorts of things. And he's written a brilliant book about masculinity, a better man. I've also written a book about masculinity. It's called The Problem With Men. And it's out on November the 5th. Go and order both those books on Amazon or your chosen book site right now and try and decide which one of them is the best. Also, if you're watching this on Wednesday, listening to this on Wednesday and are really quick, uh, I'm eBaying the, the my notebook from the last year, October 2019 to October 2020, which has all my notes for every show. It has autographs from most of the guests who did the live shows. Obviously, the remote shows, that was not possible um, it includes Sir Michael Palin's autograph, Limmy's autograph, Tim Minch's autograph, Grayson Perry's autograph, and also a doodle Grayson Perry has done of Alan Measles, his teddy bear, which is actually a bona fide work of art that you can own. Um, if you go to eBay, and my handle is herring1967, or put Rahala Stepper into eBay, I'm sure it'll come up. Um, you have a few hours to bid on it. It's already gone super high. In value, I think it's worth a lot of money, this, because it's got a work of art in it. Also, it's a one-off. Also, it's a social history of the pandemic. It's got notes for shows that never happened. Um, and the really good news is all the money from that will go to Refuge, the fantastic charity that I support on International Women's Day. So please, go, if you've got lots of money and want to own something that might be worth millions of pounds one day, it's got a real historical... Famous artist doodle in it, plus stuff by Grayson Perry as well. Bang! I won! I won the joke because I'm the famous artist. I do stone clearing. Hey, check out my Twitch channel. If you don't already, you can watch Rahalastapa's being recorded live on Wednesday nights, usually at 8pm. Ali and Herring's Twitch of Fun. Thursday at 7.30 because Taskmaster starting on Thursdays at 9 on Channel 4, 15th of... October for 10 weeks you'll see how I got on uh, on Taskmaster could mean anything um, and uh, there's also snooker on the Twitch channel and also stone clearing on the Twitch channel uh, secretly every now and again twitch.tv slash RK Herring please remember to subscribe to that if you're with Amazon Prime you can subscribe for free and give us five pounds every single month if you just can be asked to go back and click the subscribe button every month so please do that if you're with Amazon Prime, if you just want to give us some money, go to gofasterstripe.com slash badges and get loads of benefits, including extra interviews, chances to win prizes and all sorts of other stuff. Look, let's sit back, relax and enjoy this fantastic Rahalastapa with the wonderful Michael Ian Black in America. He's in Connecticut. It's great there. All right. Have fun, my fan friends. Goodbye. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a man who's just been up down the stairs and is out of breath. It's Richard Herring. Hello, welcome, my fine friends, to another uh, podcast. It feels like a long time since we've done one of these, and I've forgotten how to do it. So let's let's all relearn together. It's Sir Richard Herring's Let's Start Taskmastering podcast. Uh, yes, Taskmaster. There I am in the background. That's me. It's starting on the 15th of October, 9pm on Channel 4. I'm back on the telly. I don't need you fucking internet losers anymore. I'm back. Fuck you all. I, I hate you all. Uh, though I was hanging around with the Proud Boys uh, the other day. Not the racist ones, uh, just a load of six-year-olds uh, whose 
mums had all just said they'd done a really good job tidying up their bedrooms and they were very happy and they were all sporting stubby erections as well so they were proud in two ways and still more grown up than the other proud boys anyway those young the six-year-old proud boys they call it Rahulastabas I don't know if that's gonna catch on so um what's been going on in the new the coronavirus has been happening I don't know if you noticed uh, that there's a coronavirus going on um I uh I uh, my daughter I think is she's five I think she has I don't know if I've mentioned this she she has been affected by it uh, quite recently she made up a song at night time I don't know if I might have sung this to you before I'm gonna do it again because I can't remember which I think shows how traumatic the coronavirus is to five-year-olds who do understand it it was really good as well I don't know if she nicked the, the tune from somewhere else but it went the coronavirus is coming today uh, 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 oh how are you how are you the coronavirus is on its way how are you? I thought it's pretty, it's kind of syncopated, it's pretty good, but I think it shows uh, the level of psychological damage that's happening <laughs> to us and all our, all our children. Luckily, nothing else bad is happening in the world. I mean, imagine if there was going to be an American Civil War and a Brexit happening at the same time and the coronavirus. <laughs> so, you know, we have to thank our lucky stars uh, that Brexit's going fine and the American election's going to pass by without any problems. Um, I uh, I was actually watching. I we watched Star Wars with my daughter for the uh, for the first time uh, the weekend, which was interesting. I haven't watched Star Wars for quite a while. It was interesting to see how what my my daughter's take on it was. She kind of said it was boring, but then uh, she well, got really into it. When we finished, said she wanted to see the second one, but I hadn't noticed before how what I, what a dick Han Solo is, and I hadn't. I'd always quite liked him before. He's a bit of a goal hanger at the end. I don't like it when the Death Star battle, you know, he gets all the Darth Vader off of Luke's tail. So he's a kind of hero, but he's disappeared for the entire... And all those other pilots have died as a result of... If he'd Han Solo had just been there at the beginning or come back five minutes earlier, he could have saved the lives of countless other air people. Uh, he might have been killed as well, but he would have died with some dignity rather than just coming in when it was all over and then shooting off some people and going to the medal ceremony. Jo joins. I just think the celebrations at the end, it should be everyone going, yeah... Well, thanks for that, I guess. But, you know, it'd be nice if Simon was still here. We've lost a lot of people. It's very hard to celebrate this. You're coming in wanting a big medal off Princess Leia. It's not good enough. You're not a hero for turning up at the end. It reminded me um, when I was at college, the first day at college, um, I was in my room and I was a bit scared and nervous sitting in my room. And I heard this kind of clunk of someone dragging something up the stairs. And there was like three or four flights of stairs. Uh, I could hear the, this clunking sound. It was clearly someone sort of dragging a heavy trunk or suitcase up the stairs. And I sat there thinking, well, it's not my problem, is it? Someone else will probably step in to help me. It's a long way down. I hit clunk, clunk, clunk. And it went on and on, clunk. And then I thought, well, you know, in the end, I thought, well, maybe, maybe I should. I've been a bit selfish. So I came out just as it was uh, one of the dads was carrying this trunk up the the stairs I came out just there was five steps to go he'd been up about a hundred steps by this stage I said and I pretended I went oh breezily oh do you need a hand as if I hadn't just been sitting there listening which I obviously had because it had made such a noise and the bloke basically told me to fuck off and did it himself that's the same as Han Solo at the end that's that that's <laughs> it's just I don't know where his son was while he was doing all this but later the son would tell came to me and told me the story of the idiot who came out and asked if his dad needed a hand at the last minute what a prick I agreed I never told him I was the prick. 
I was hand fucking solo at the Death Star and I didn't get a fucking medal and I didn't ask one because I knew I'd been a prick. And 30 or so good men hadn't been killed as a result of me not bothering to show up and shoot the baddies. Han Solo is a fucking prick who wouldn't help someone's dad up the stairs with a trunk even if though it wasn't really my battle. If I was really Han Solo, then I'd have gone on and fucked that, that student's sister as well. But I'm better than Han Solo, at least in that regard. So... That's what's been going on for me. Uh, quick plugs before we get going. Um, the uh, Please listen and watch uh, Ali and Herring's Twitch of Fun, which I usually record on Thursday. I did it on Tuesday this week. Um, it goes up uh, on YouTube and it goes out as a podcast. It's me talking to a 128-year-old ventriloquist dummy made by my great-granddad for an hour and some other bits of shit that I found around my office. And I mean, just look at that. There's a cocky carrot. He's a new character. <laughs> I'd get him out now, but I put him in the fridge because he was already looking a bit mouldy. I'm not having a breakdown. And anyone who says I am and that six more months of lockdown is going to send me over the edge is lying. Uh, also, we do have a Kickstarter for the snooker, self-playing snooker, uh, with three days to go. We still have to get £4,000 to hit the target. All the profits from that are going towards live comedy clubs, so it would be terrific if you would head to rahalastaba.co.uk slash Kickstarter and make a donation and get us over the line at least. I'd like to have raised a lot more than £20,000, uh, as live comedy clubs will need a lot more money than that. But do support us if you can, and uh, remember you can link your Amazon Prime and Amazon Gaming accounts and give us free money uh, via their ridiculous scheme where you're allowed to give us £5 every month for free if you're with Amazon Prime. I don't understand why they do it. Please keep doing it. It's nice to have the free money. Anyway, let's crack on. Uh, I guessed this week I'm very excited about. It's our uh, third transatlantic guest. He's... uh, Probably best known for dropping out of school to tour as a part of a two-man Mutant Ninja Turtle show in car parks and stuff. That's why we're all here today. So we want to see what he's been doing since then. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome the amazing Michael Ian Black. Ladies and gentlemen, there he is. He's here. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Cowabunga, dude. Good. Yeah, well, we wouldn't wouldn't have been the same if you hadn't done your... Your catchphrase. That was your first... Was it your first professional job being a, a, a Mutant Ninja Turtle? I believe it was. Yeah. I dropped out of college to tour the country as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Yes, I did. Um, <laughs> it was a rock and roll show. There was a rock and roll Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle tour that was going on. Yeah. Singing Dancing Turtles. Uh, Radio City Musical. Big venues. Mm. I, was, I and my friend were hired to promote that tour. So we would travel ahead of the tour and promote it okay. at Pizza Hut's and schools and radio stations and it was great i mean i was 18 i saw the country it was it was fun sure you only lasted a couple of months though, and then you you found it too too much to bear being dressed up it was, with... it, i think it was about four months okay. that i was on it, it, it the by the end it was it was more the smell i think than, than anything else <laughs> that encouraged me to stop yeah. i i it, it, the 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 we were just two guys. We didn't have the capability of cleaning a full robotic turtle suit. And sure. so after a while, it just got to be too much. Too much. Wait, did, were you a specific turtle or a generic turtle? Was, were, you, were you playing one of the characters or were you just generically a, a mutant ninja turtle? There's no such thing as a generic okay. teenage mutant ninja okay, turtle. I'm sorry. And I would expect better of you than to even suggest there was. <laughs> Which I one was were... Raphael. I was Raphael. Oh, that's okay. He's okay, isn't he? I don't know. I no. couldn't tell the difference between them. <laughs> <laughs> they all seem the same to me. 
So it's very nice to meet you. Having researched you more, I've seen your work over the years. Um, uh, I, actually, Maria Konnikova, whose podcast went out the same day as this one was recorded, uh, told when I told her I was writing a book about masculinity, she said she recommended your book about masculinity, which has just come out, uh, called A Better Man. But it's quite interesting. You were in a very early on. You're in a, this. It's weird. The, the very a lot of parallels between our two careers is what I would say. You started early on and got in at a think maybe a more successful sketch show than us. I was in a, t- a sketch show uh, on TV pretty early. You're quite obsessed with poker and Scrabble. You've chosen to put Ian in your name uh, as a voluntarily, which is something I do pretty much in all of my scripts. Um, <laughs> you enjoy putting out, I would say, slightly challenging podcasts. You've got one about mm-hmm. reading Jude the Obscure from cover to cover uh, called Obscurity. And it's yes, about, and it's about it's... feeling slightly obscure. Um, mm-hmm. And you've written a book about masculinity and about body image, which I've written one sort of about that as well. I'm kind of thinking that we might be the US and UK versions of each other. And I'm worried Maybe. by us meeting and just talking, that might create some kind of rift in. It might be, yeah, some sort of, of the universe. Uh, paradox. Yeah. In which we cancel each other out. Yeah. Are you able to pay your mortgage during COVID? Because <laughs> I, th- I am actually, yeah. I'm doing okay. I'm getting yeah, through see, it. then we're not the same. No. Then we're not the same okay, person. Okay, well, that's good. Well, I've had a good year. Luck this year was going to be a very good year for me. Uh, and and then, you know, I'm not going to say I'm the biggest victim of the COVID virus, but I lost quite a bit of work. But I managed, the Taskmaster thing I mentioned at the beginning, That's a, I, we managed to get done. So that was a TV show, which is quite a rarity for me. You, you seem to do more TV than I do. Uh, um, and, used to be. Used to be. Now yeah. my career's in the toilet. Now I'm reduced <laughs> to writing books about masculinity. <laughs> well, we've both been reduced to that. So we'll talk about that uh, later, I think. Um, but it's kind of, it's sort of, I mean, I think, you know, you're bigger in America than I am in the uh, in America. And you're, uh, you're probably bigger in the UK than I am in America as well. So I think you're slightly <laughs> winning. But we both, I think if we went to each other's countries and, and tried to tour, we'd probably do equally Bad. Like bad. I think you do yeah. slightly better than me, but I don't think I, there may be some American listeners to this, but not not many. Yeah, no. Uh, I, because I am doing a podcast about obscurity because yeah. that is I'm right on the edges. I'm right on the edges of of mainstream success, but on the far edges, I am to mainstream success what. Uh, our solar system is to the galaxy. I'm just on a far spiral arm of it. <laughs> well, it depends how, what you're look, where you're placing yourself, because you are, you know. I think I always think this with with comedians in general and comedy people in general. They're all, they're all often looking up at the next level and saying, "Well, that guy's doing better than me, and how do I get to that level?" But there is also there must be a lot of people looking up at uh, Michael Ian Black and saying, "I wish I was at that." that level as well there's a lot you know oh, you're probably. you're on you're on tv shows yeah, um, yeah. people would see you know if you said oh you know you were the guy in uh, this is 40 people go oh there was that guy you know and they say you're in the, the, the whatever the, whatever little parts yeah, I've had but in, they would recognize yeah. you whereas they wouldn't they wouldn't say oh it's that guy from who cut his cock off in that short film they wouldn't say if i went to america no one would say that <laughs> Um, is that uh, yeah, like- but you know the thing is, like, I don't, I don't really look up anymore. Like, I'm, I would be perfectly content to remain exactly where I am in this uh, industry, just so long as I didn't have to worry about the monetary aspect. Okay, of it. I have no, I have no more ambition 
I have no desire to do anything great or memorable. I really am content to spend my days as I have been doing in COVID, which is waking up fairly early, reading the paper, checking Twitter, taking a nap, practicing piano, which I'm awful at, <laughs> and then doing doing occasionally like stuff like this. Yeah. That, that's just a perfect life for me. I live out in the woods. It's great. It's quiet. I don't, I don't miss the hustle of bustle. I miss I th- nothing. I think I've seen that from a lot of middle-aged comedians. Looking on Facebook, there's a lot of middle-aged comedians I've seen who are reassessing whether they even want to go back on the road. I mean, some of them mm-hmm. quite sadly about it. and some. I, I feel the same. I sort of think this is I'm having a nice time. I'm spending a lot of time with my family. I luckily live in the countryside um, and I can carry, you know, I can carry on working from my desk here, uh, if it could be called that. And it's, what and it does, it, it's, and it's nice. So, you know, I do, I sort of think maybe, maybe after 2020, I'll just sort of quietly just stay at home and do this. And, and the hundred people who like watching this can stay and, and watch. I mean, it. you look, you look well, you I'm have, a, you have a fine hale complexion about you. <laughs> Your hair is sort of tousled in an attractive way. Thank you're doing you. great. As far as I can tell, you're doing great. I'm having a nice time. It's going okay, but uh, I would. Prov- it's it's that thing. It's wondering the. It's wondering about the psychological effects of all of this, uh, uh, as well as the obvious uh, physical and um, the illness and death. That's not a very nice part of this particular uh, virus. Um, and a lot of people- I would go. I would go so far as to say it's the worst part of the I virus. I think it is the, the worst part. But all yeah. the other things on top of that, where you think, you know, when you think, my three-year-old son, my son who's nearly three, just cannot understand what's happening at all. He doesn't. Un- he doesn't understand why people aren't allowed in the house. Uh, mm-hmm. He doesn't understand why he hasn't seen many of his. We- we've managed to be able to like to go out a bit more now, so he's a bit happier. And my five-year-old understands, but you sort of wonder. My mum, who. Uh, lived through the second world war as a as a, a similar age to my kids and sort of was about maybe eight or nine when the war finished sent me a lovely email for my daughter and about all the stuff that she had to go through and whether my daughter would remember in you know 78 years time whether she would remember this kind of awful summer uh but uh it's sort of that's that's the last time i think that something within our western world has affected like children as much as as much as this has and affected their lives. And you sort of want, if, if they're singing these, these sort of spiritual songs about the coronavirus as they go to bed, <laughs> what, what's, what kind of dreams are they having and what, what's going on? But anyway, let's not talk about that. Um, we've managed to avoid talking about the coronavirus for quite a while. Well, Ring Around the Rosie, right? Classic yeah. children's song about, about the plague, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. The great art comes from this. Great, great children's songs. Well, she wants to be a pop star, my daughter. But I, if she made that thing up, what she sang to me, I think, you know, where the hell did that come from? So maybe mm-hmm. she will be. Um, I had to look up where Connecticut was. I US. feel it, I feel it may be the Hertfordshire of America. I told you that beforehand. I think people mm-hmm. have to look up Hart because Hertfordshire is one of those places people go, is that in like the northwest is that near london it's kind of near london but uh connecticut i wasn't i kind of assumed it was probably near to new york which it is ish mm-hmm. but it could have yeah. been anywhere for me in in the yeah. uk uh it's 60 miles outside of new york city oh that's close then isn't it close enough if yeah. you have to get in 
Um, but fortunately, I no longer have to go in because nothing's happening in New York. So <laughs> just sit, you can see the woods behind me. I was just, They're beautiful. We were looking at those when you went out for a second. It's uh, unbelievable. I mean, it's it's a nice thing. Well, it's nice to be that close as well. You can you can get there if you need to. Um, it's the nutmeg state, Connecticut. So. That's what they call it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why. I'm not really <laughs> sure how nutmeg enters the world. Is I don't know if it's a seed or a pod or a nut. I guess it's in the name nutmeg. Yeah. Um, but and I, and, I, and I don't know what you do with it other than I guess it goes on eggnog during the holidays. Beyond that, I really have no idea what its purpose is, and I don't know why Connecticut is associated with it. <laughs> would you? What would you associate Connecticut with? What What do you think its finest achievement is? Uh, we have nothing going for us. There's really. <laughs> When you when you mention to people that you're from Connecticut, they will often say, "Yes, I drove through there once," and that's that's what I think we're known for. If you're driving from New York to Boston, you will pass through Connecticut, and uh, you will think to yourself, "How much longer are we going to be in Connecticut?" If you're driving through. That's what we're known for. Yeah. What, what I liked about it from my minimal research about Connecticut is there's a town in the middle of Connecticut called Middletown. That's my favorite thing about Connecticut. <laughs> I suppose there is. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I um, like to just think. Well, that's good. They know where they, who they are. They know where their <laughs> middle is, and that's what should we call this place in the middle? As long as we don't change the borders, it'll be fine. Um, let I was listening to your podcast uh, this week uh, in preparation to this podcast and uh, the, the obscure one. I know you've done several podcasts, but I was listening to obscure, which I do like. It is the sort of thing that I would do, where you've, ta- you've rather than you offered to do a podcast and rather than doing the sort of thing we're doing now with two comedians talking to each other, you, um, you, you went down the road of thinking, well, I've never read Jude the Obscure and I don't know what it's about. So why don't I read Jude the Obscure over what? 75, 80. About 75 episodes of me reading Jude the Obscure out loud and commenting on it as I go. Yeah. Without knowing anything about it, having never read any Thomas Hardy, not, and, and moreover, not desiring to read Jude the Obscure sure. or Thomas Hardy, really having no desire to read it at all. But it had been sitting on these very bookshelves wow, that's right great. here. Look at that, like that ladder. Yeah, oh, it's a, I, got, I got a ladder. Yeah, on that's my nice. I should get one of those. Bookshelf. So I guess I am doing pretty yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I pulled it down and I, and I was just looking for something to do. I was like, I'm going to read this book out loud until it's done. And and I did. Yeah. Uh, it took over a year of weekly episodes. Um, but and now I'm doing a second season. I'm reading Frankenstein out loud. Yeah, I've read Frankenstein. Frankenstein's book. a good book. I mean, not, not that Jude the Obscure isn't a good book, but I hadn't read I hadn't read Jude the Obscure either. I've read some Thomas Hardy a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Frankenstein. Have you started the Frankenstein one, or is it? Is it? I've started it, but I'm not that far into it. Please right. don't give me any spoilers. He's just met Doctor Frankenstein. Okay. Uh, so I don't know. I really don't know what happens. There's already been many surprises for me as yeah. to what the book is about. Because all I know is, you know, Boris Karloff sticking his arms out yeah. and going. Ugh. It doesn't seem to be at all what Frankenstein is like. No, the book. No, it's a, it's there, there's more to it than that. It is it's a very good book. Jude the Obscure. I, I what I like about it, and I think you should just if you are looking for a source of income. I genuinely think this would work. Don't I mean what I like about the Obscure podcast is there's more to it than you read in the the book and you mm-hmm. do talk about your life and you talk about the idea of, of obscurity and how you're feeling that you're an obscure comedian um which is interesting but 
when you come to actually read the book, having someone just what never happens on audiobooks is someone going, um, like, do you remember this guy? He's the guy who was in the earlier chapter and just does a little praise of what's going on <laughs> and reminds you <laughs> and, and then comments to actually get some comments about explaining what's happening is extremely useful because I think listen, I've tried to listen to Middlemarch as an audiobook <sighs> and it was absolutely impenetrable because you can't remember who anyone is. If you're walking a dog, the dog runs off, you've missed two minutes and you're fucked. So, this is why I don't read any Russian literature. Yeah. They have, each of them has like six different names yeah. that they call themselves. Misha and Abramovich <laughs> and little, little Misha. I mean, they all have nicknames yeah. and patronomics and I find it so confusing. Well, I, I just came up on the Russians altogether. You were very good at understanding what was going on in Jude the Obscure and you were very good at explaining it. I liked the bit early on where you talked about it being, I didn't know it was Thomas Hardy's last book and that he didn't write for another, he lived for another 30 years. That's fascinating. So immediately we're, that, just that piece of information adds so much to this book. Um, I didn't agree with your choice of making his aunt or whatever she is Irish. I think that was a mistake. Oh, well, you have to understand, like my accent work <laughs> is terrible. Yes. Well, as, so, is, as is my own. This I'm not making her Irish. I'm just doing a vaguely, vaguely yeah. UK voice, yeah. and whatever comes out comes out. Yeah, it should be um, a Dor- it's a Dor- it should be Dorset. It's kind of where I grew up. So apart from that, it was fine. Well, what would she sound she'd like? She'd be like, "Hello, it's me. That's Thomas. Hello, Jude. Come on in. You're a stupid prick." Uh, It'd be like that. But your Irish yeah. accent was about as good as my Irish accent, and that is the highest praise that any man can give. I know my viewers will be saying, oh, he must have an amazing Irish accent. I play snooker against my... So my podcasts that are obscure, I collect. I go around a field do, doing a dog walk, and I'm trying to move all the stones off the field onto the edge of the field and build a wall that's visible from space is the ultimate aim of it. It's a 35-acre field, and I've been doing it for two years so far, and you probably wouldn't notice so far but there's i've got 20 or 30 years to go so it's about trying to achieve something in my life so i think it's a similar themed thing to you it's about feeling your life hasn't amounted to anything so let it amount to something and then i commentate on that as i go around all as soon as you walk around anywhere in connecticut what you will see are stone walls everywhere because the rock the soil here is so rocky that the, the original settlers who were farming it had to do something with these stones so they would move them and just mark their boundaries with them. And so they're everywhere. Cool. So I, I certainly understand the futility of yeah. what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, they, they may be doing better than I'm doing. I mean, there's a few. I'll send you some photos later of, of what I've achieved so far. Um, and I've started, I've started videoing that now as we're on Twitch, so occasionally it goes on Twitch. I play myself at Snooker, which is a game you won't know much about. I think I did talk to Maria. Seen Conaca. a bit of it. Yeah. Uh, but most people play against other people. But I, I have 32 guises I play against myself now, one of whom is an Irish me. That's why I can say that your Irish accent <laughs> is very good. Uh, so, you know, I think you, we're on a similar wavelength. So I did. Re- I'm going to listen to the rest of it. I'm going to get through it. I think I'm, I've only done four chapters. It's not something you want to just listen to in a day, which I would say of my podcast as well. You want to, you want to, it's nice to do it weekly. I think your podcast, that particular podcast, would you agree with that? Yeah. Mine is definitely not binge worthy in <laughs> any way, shape or form. <laughs> and do you find people use it? A lot of people tell me they use mine to go to sleep with, which is as an artist, you're not in control of how people use your art. 
do people find yours quite a, a soothing podcast? I'd imagine. Nobody's told me they use it to go to sleep, but then again, nobody's really told me that they listen to it. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I do recommend it. Um, it's very good if you if you like my stuff. I mean, if you like my stuff, you don't need another fucking one of those things coming into your life. But I still seem to be... I, I churn out enough of this rubbish. Um, hey, I was very excited to... I had Simon Pegg on uh, as a guest on this podcast. Uh, and I picked out what I considered to be his worst film. Uh, and I was oh, very I was very excited to see that uh, you, you... But wrote, I wrote it? You wrote it. You hate Run Five Point Run. I do. I really do. <laughs> I like everything else you do. So I don't know. I haven't watched it for a long time because I did run marathons. I think there's an element of jealousy because you're doing everything that I do. I think I wanted to write that film, <laughs> and I think that's probably <laughs> the start. I think it was more of a joke that I kind of picked out. I just pick, as I do. I randomly pick out stuff from people's resumes and then and and rag on it and see what happens. And then shit on them. I shit on it a little. I think I don't know. There was something about it that I can't. I. Did it, did it was it was was it just you you and Simon wrote that together the two of you? I wrote it originally, yeah. and then it was supposed to be it was you know it was Amer- it was supposed to be an American film, and then a British company picked it up, and then Simon attached and he rewrote it to sort of make yeah. it more Britishy. Yeah, he and fucked then it. He, he fucked up. Oh, it was all him. Yeah. I, I, I agree, it's an atrocious film. <laughs> and it, I mean, it's one of those films that. It, Honest, honestly, like the reason I wrote it was I sat down as a writing exercise and I was like, is it possible for me to write something that is mainstream at all? That was literally the, 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 the writing challenge to myself. And so that's what I tried to do. And, and I think it came out really well. Um, uh, like to me, there's nothing objectionable about it. Like, you, may not, you may not love it. But it's a kind of, it's an inoffensive film. No, I managed to be offended by it. I can't, but I can't, I wasn't going to watch it again to find out what it was. <laughs> but you know, but, it was also, know. but it's also with things like that, you can watch something and you only watch most things once, right? And if you're in a bad mm-hmm. mood or you've had an argument with, if I have had an argument with my wife and she's decided she likes something, I'm not going to, I'm deliberately not going to like it, Michael. Did your wife like it or no? She didn't like I don't it know either. If she, I don't know if she was, I don't know if I was with my wife when, I think you know that we went, the film we went to see uh, as the first time we sort of got properly together was Dan in real life. Did you have anything to do with writing Dan in real life? Because no. no, that was that was that was really bad. But luckily, it was bad enough that we didn't mind because we it was when we first uh, embraced. Well, that's lovely. I mean, it was no look. It wasn't as bad as Run Fat Boy it was Run. No, too. Run Fat Boy Run. <laughs> um, well, I'm sorry that I'm sorry because I have I've enjoyed. Everything else of yours that I've seen, I have not seen everything of yours. I haven't seen you, Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, <laughs> you were, uh, I, I do pick on like slight obscurely obscure things, but I'm interested in this, and I don't know. Nobody knows what this is like. This one because I don't think it was broadcast. But you appeared in the American version of Gavin and Stacey, which is called right. Us and Them. And then, uh, yes, and then and I never, I never watched Gavin and Stacey, so I really have nothing. I don't know how bad my performance is in comparison to the British version who of it. You, I'm what character were you playing? Who, who were you in? The, uh, the guy who is like the uncle or something okay. or like. Oh, goes camp- who goes camping with a, and has a, has a relationship with a 
the younger know. nephew. I don't remember we shot, we shot six episodes. <laughs> but it never it. did it go out? Did any of it go out? Did some of it go out? And Apparently, got- it aired in New Zealand for some reason. That's all I know about it. I never saw. I never saw a frame of it. I never saw a frame of Gavin and Stacey. I was showing up and going to work and doing my best. Of course, I'm not. But I don't even know because no one's seen it. I, I just I'm, fa- I'm fascinated by. Sometimes it works, doesn't it? Like I think with the American Office, that I think the American Office is better than the British Office. I know Americans don't think that, but I I generally do think it's a, a better sitcom. I never really watched the American. Have one. you not? I, I did love the British one, yeah. and then. I just and and part of the reason is again jealousy because I auditioned for the American <laughs> one, didn't get anywhere near it, and I was like, well, it's terrible anyway. Obviously, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it was it. I think just because it it, I think we got in Britain we got this idea because we all write stuff on our own that thirteen episodes, twelve or thirteen episodes is the number of episodes you do, and mm-hmm. I actually admire the American shows which can do two hundred fantastic. 200. Episodes. And, but yeah. they can do, you know, there's, uh, there are there are shows that do 200 fantastic episodes. There aren't many who do more than 200 fantastic episodes. But I think if you've got good characters, it's possible to to oh, yeah. do much more with them than 12 episodes. Oh, clearly, yeah. Better. I mean, we, we, we have a long tradition of, of printing money with successful television <laughs> sitcoms. I've never been a part of that. Well, it's but... All want, it's all I want is to show up and be the fifth sixth or seventh lead on an American sitcom <laughs> where I work one day a week and the show goes on for fucking ever. That's all I want. It would be not. Well, you've changed your mind because a minute ago you just wanted to stay at home and do nothing and now you want to go and be a big, successful... No, I'm hoping I can shoot my scene from home. <laughs> from... It's like one scene a week with me here just typing and being like, yeah, I guess I'll get that to you right away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I we saw the uh, what I can't remember the, the the show that was the was it Burning Love the one about the yeah. sort of bachelor bachelor parody, parody which we was that a couple of series because we watched that on Netflix I could I don't think it's on UK Netflix anymore but we watched it on Netflix there were three different seasons three, I think it, yeah. we saw all of it then because we got quite obsessed with that and that was so that must that's successful you're in another period which seems to be doing very well oh yeah all the, the shows that I'm in that are successful yeah. Um, like another period on Comedy Central, uh, Comedy Central here, uh, and Burning Love, all of them are made for no money, um, in a very compressed amount of time, and you know they they come and they go, and and you don't see a dime from them. <laughs> it's well, terrible. you know, I would just I'd just like to be getting some. You know, I say I look at you and I think that I'd, I would like that life. I'd like to live in a wood. But- We've already established that you have my life. <laughs> I don't. I don't have the TV have the without life. the TV part. My TV part is fucking fucking around with puppets and my desk. I've got. A, I do a character that's a dead wasp. That's what. That's one of my characters. <laughs> fucking hell. What does your dead watch sound like? Uh, well, it's all ventri- I'm, I'm practicing ventriloquism. So it goes, zzz, hello. I, can't, I think I've been experimenting with... I just change the accent every time. I think he's northern at the moment. <laughs> hello, it's me. I'm Brian Ross. He does well, reviews. It's a very well-developed character. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I've just found a dead wasp when I was doing that, and, and, it, and it became part of the show of my life's falling apart. What do you do? How do you, as a ventriloquist, how do you deal with your peas and your stop? Well, places? not not well. I mean, I've, <laughs> what I've decided to do is learn ventriloquism on the just on the hop. So I'm doing it. <laughs> I'm learning in front of the camera. I've literally done no practice. My practice is one hour a week. I'd sit here and and ventriloquize 
various. That's that's my my great granddad's. That's Ali Sloper. Uh, he's from 1892. I'm linking at it. That's that's what he does. So there you go. And, and was he a professional ventriloquist, or he no. was just kind of amateur? He was an amateur uh, Methodist. He wasn't even a proper Methodist preacher. I thought he was a Methodist preacher, but my dad told me, or my mum told me, that he just helped them out when they were <laughs> they were busy. So he wasn't ordained. He just went and tried to educate kids about method Methodism. Sure. Uh, and I'm not using them for the same purpose, though. So uh, we, there is, you know, I think I, it's hard. What would you feel if you'd made by hand those two beautiful, terrifying dolls? It would be nice to think your great grandson was using them, wouldn't it? If you think I I'd think made he'd be delighted. Yeah, but then delighted. if he's, I don't think he would because what I'm doing. I mean, with him I, is I don't, I don't know how profane you are. I'm with profane. Them. Maybe, yeah, that, that might offend him yeah. quite a bit. So it's hard, isn't it? I wonder what you. I don't know what. I'd, what if, what if my great grandchild uses them to promote Nazism or something like that? I'd be pleased that they were they were being used. <laughs> right, At but least you know that'd be oh. They're being put into service <laughs> for their intended use. It's yeah. just a message. Yeah, and just very successfully converts the world to Nazism through the medium of these puppets. You go, well, I can't help but be proud of, of the, 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 the skill has passed down the generations. But, oh. <laughs> what a thing what a thing um that my favorite fact i've learned about you and i, can't, I think this might have been from another podcast is that or maybe it's in the book uh is that you're scared of worms i think you yeah that is i mean i i have emergency questions and i think a new emergency question of what is the most pathetic thing that you're afraid of is a good one and i think worms i mean it's a it's why are you afraid of worms and no offense but it's pathetic it's pathetic uh, no, no offense taken. I would agree that it's pathetic okay, because they're scary. I mean, I think that's the the correct answer. They're scary. They wriggle. Yeah. Um, every, you know, everything just sort of comes into them and goes out of them and they surprise you. You'll be digging in dirt and just trying to m move some roots or do something. And then all of a sudden there's a goddamn worm there. And they don't and they pay you no heed. It's like you don't even exist to them. They're terrifying. I find them terrifying. I find them as scary as snakes. People don't say, well, why are you scared of snakes? Snakes are scary. Worms are also scary. Well, snakes can harm you. Worms can harm you. Like, I don't know how. I don't know how. <laughs> you could slip on one. Absolutely. And they and they, they wriggle on your driveway and they dry up and they and just the desiccated corpses of worms. It I, I, I don't I, I don't like them. I feel like I'm getting better with them yeah. the longer I live in the country. But yeah, they're my least favorite of the uh species i think okay fair enough all right they don't even have eyes do they they don't even have eyes no but they don't need them they just they have lived a happy life oh. they're down snakes there snakes have eyes you can relate like you can look at <laughs> snake and kind of relate to it there's a little bit of empathy i yeah. think there worms well worms uh, you have uh they're like fingers they're like um sort of mini penises can relate oh. to them on a penile level well i'm scared i'm scared of mini penises <laughs> i think if yeah i think if i met someone whose penis was was a worm you'd be terrified i would be terrified that could be we might have just workshopped a brilliant new horror character <laughs> to a horror what, film do you what what what's your most pathetic fear? uh polystyrene 
the, uh, the noise the, the, of polystyrene. So any polystyrene being rubbed against other polystyrene absolutely drives me insane. Terrible. But it doesn't scare you. No, I mean, it, it actually, I become like the Incredible Hulk as a result. If it's if it's at the right frequency, it makes me angry. Uh, it scares me. If I see polystyrene, I'm aware that it can make the sound, even if it's not making the sound. So I got a TV recently, taking that out of the box. Oh. How do you get the TV out of the box without squeaking the polystyrene? You c it cannot be done, my friend. So even just looking at the polystyrene fills me with a sick dread. And here I am not judging you for that at all and yeah. nodding along empathetically yeah. and going, yes, I can see why that would be you won't, get the, you won't get the same from me with worms because a worm, if you rubbed a worm against another worm, it would not make a sound. It would be, it would, that's the beauty of the worm, in fact, I would say, that it's huh. absolutely, because of its sliminess, there's, they would just roll off each other without making as much as a whisper. If you just got Ugh. a load of them together. It's globule, a worm globule. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> Oh, hello. It's time for a bonus little podcast within the podcast, courtesy of our sponsor, the Glen Livet, the original Speyside Malt. It's just like me, original by tradition. That's what I am. So that's why we are here. And we are joined today by the Head of Heritage and Education at the Glenlivet, Alex Robertson. How are you doing, Alex? Hey, I'm great, Richard. Thank you for that build-up. And what a link, original by tradition, describes you perfectly. Yeah. It is exactly what I am. I'm just I just copy old things but make them original. That's that's wow. what I do. So um look, you're gonna tell us a bit about the history. Can you tell us about the craftsmanship history of malt whiskey? Because it's quite interesting how it all started, isn't it? Yeah, it's fascinating. Really the background of a uh, malt whiskey of Scotch whiskey is one of a legal distillation. I have the pleasure of looking after the company archives and please bear with me, it's more exciting than it sounds. Um, and we know in the Glenlivet Valley there were about 200 legal distillers which at the turn of the wow. eight, uh, 19th century um, all of whom were making whiskey illegally because they quite simply did not want to pay the taxes on distillation. Distillation taxes were universally Resented, and actually amongst them was our founder George Smith, the man who went on to in 1824 create the first licensed distillery in the valley of the Glenlivet, 14 miles long and six miles wide. Wow! And he started paying taxes and became quite unpopular as a result with everyone else. Is that right? He was incredibly unpopular. Listen, the, the Glenlivet was known long before this. You know, indeed, King George the Fourth had asked for it on a state visit to Edinburgh in eighteen twenty-two. You know Edinburgh well, of course. Um, and at that point, the Glenlivet was described as smooth as milk and long and wood. And we're going to discover uh, why it's smooth as milk and long and wood. Um, so what, what is it that makes the Glenlivet so unique? Well, listen, that's a, that's a great question. It's the million-dollar question in whiskey. You know, we are known as the Glenlivet, first of all, because there were so many distilleries using Glenlivet's name that there was a test case in 1884, and it led to the Glenlivet being awarded the right to be called the original Speyside single malt, the Glenlivet. In terms of craftsmanship, Remember, Scotch whisky is protected in law. Three natural ingredients, everything you try today, will be uh, malted barley, yeast and water. Simple as that. Every distillery is 
following the same process. And we can look at the water, the mineral-rich water at the Glenlivet. We can look at the beautiful tall copper stills. You're invited. You must come and see us. Um, and give you the copper kiss and the banana, toffee, pineapple spirit. Um, you can look at the local barley that we use. But actually, water master distiller Alan Winchester says it's the magic of location. You simply cannot make the Glenlivet anywhere else. If you were to move the distillery, the flavour would change. Well, that sounds fantastic. I will definitely take you up on that uh, invitation. I've got some of the 12-year-old double oak, the Glenlivet. Um, what am I looking for when I am drinking? Because I, you know, I, I love tasting whiskey, but I, I'm not an expert. Am I meant to sniff it first? Yes, there's no mystery to whiskey tasting, and you can really describe exactly as you find it. So the Glenlivet 12-year-old is the original. It's the, the one that set the standard, and you can enjoy it with ice or water as a cocktail, and it really, truly represents the Glenlivet style. So you're looking for the key characteristics of the spirit, which is that pineapple note. Think of citrus, then opening up to sweetness. Um, you're looking for that banana toffee note. Then you're crucially rich and looking for the influence of the cask because the cask is the predominant influence upon flavour. And here we we'll use American oak barrels. You get a little bit of vanilla um, coming through. We also use European oak, which you'll see in a moment in 18. So look at the colour, bright, vibrant gold. You see that comes from the casks themselves. And it's fruity. This is a taste of summer. You remember summer? <laughs> <laughs> Not not in Glasgow, I don't remember some of it. Yes, it's, you are right. It is fantastic. And so I've got the 18-year-old uh, batch reserve here as well. Now, what's the difference about another six years? What difference does that make? Well, listen, when you're maturing um, the finest Scotch whiskey in the Glenlivet, you, you have two things to play with. You can play with time, so the amount of time it's in the cask, okay? And you can play with the type of casks. And we're innovating at the Glenlivet. For example, recently we released the Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve, selectively finished in barrels that held Caribbean rum. We've selectively finished in cognac casks too. But here with the 18, think about what you were doing 18 years ago. Um, Edinburgh Festival, perhaps, or um, think back. You... <laughs> well, that spirit has been in the cask that whole time. It's taking wow. character from the cask. It's fruity. Uh, characters that you find the spirit are being enhanced. Uh, the smoothness um, is increasing. You're seeing that smooth, balanced style. And the 18 will also use European oak, so you get a little bit of um, uh, those spicy notes coming through. So the vanilla might become toffee or dark chocolate. Those orchard fruits or citrus fruits might just turn down to a little dried fruit. Think of turning the dimmer switch down on the 12-year-old. Okay, yeah, it's great. Well, it, well, it is, it's... it's... I don't know if it's like milk, but it's uh, it is very smooth and it's very delicious. Uh, so thank you for helping me with that. I'm I'm enjoying this uh, podcast very much. Please remember to drink responsibly. Visit drinkaware.co.uk for more information. Uh, thank you very much, Alex. Alex Robertson, head of heritage and education at the Glenlivet, and thank you to the Glenlivet for sponsoring this podcast. So look, I, I've I was in danger this year of writing more books than I'd read. And I've read, I've written one and a bit books, and I've read zero books. I've listened to lots of books, um, or a few books, but now I've read a book out with my eyes, <laughs> and it was your book uh, called A Better Man, which is a uh, a letter to your eighteen year old son, as as you say in the title, a fairly serious letter to your son about 
I mean, it's funny as well, but it's but it but it's about masculinity, which obviously interested me as I also have the book I've written. Uh, is um, which book is better? Uh, which book is better? Is that yeah. the question? I I think that your book is better. Having yeah, read both that. of them, if you're going to buy one book about mass, the the crisis of masculinity this year, read Michael Ian Black's. But if you're going to think I could get two, of them, I'd like to write, read two of these. I would say my book's funnier than yours, but your yeah. book isn't particularly trying to be that funny, and your book is still funny. But, no, it does say on the cover in mostly serious yeah, letters. Yeah, mostly serious. There are there are some good jokes, and there's some good jokes at the expense of yourself and your family. It's a, but it's very heartwarming, and it's, um, well, I think both of us have uh, arrived at from slightly different directions at this kind of realization that isn't hard to realize in the world that we live in that men are in crisis, and that it's mm-hmm. a crisis more or less of their own making, or at least. They, 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 of their own need to get out of it. They need to find a way out of it. It's and, our inheritance. The yeah. crisis is our inheritance. Yeah. So We're tell me, tell me what what made you want to write this book, and and where did this come from from you? Well, nothing funny, of course. No. Mostly serious. It was um, school shootings here in the U.S., which you don't have to deal with, but we have to deal with with an alarming frequency. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the Sandy Hook shooting here, which was an elementary school that occurred maybe half a dozen miles from my house when my kids were in elementary school. Um, and it was, as you can imagine, a traumatic event for not all, for, you know, all of this area, these communities, these communities. Um, and that got me very invested in the issue of gun violence. And I became very vocal publicly about the issue of gun violence. We've got an organization here called the NRA, the National Rifle Association, which I routinely uh, call a uh, terrorist organization. And that does not endear me to them. Um, But I think they are in fact a terrorist organization. Anyway, I became very vocal about that. Years later, when my kids were in high school, there was another shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida. That was the year that my son entered his senior year of high school. And once again, I started railing against gun manufacturers and the gun lobby and blah, blah, blah. And then I just asked aloud, meaning on Twitter, the question which I didn't see anybody asking, which is why is it that boys are always the ones who are pulling the triggers? It's always boys doing these acts. It's boys who commit the, the, the vast majority of violence around the globe. Why is that? So I just wrote this Twitter thread about it, just out of exasperation more than anything else. And then the New York Times contacted me and they said, do you want to write an op-ed about this? And I was like, not really. I don't know enough about this. I'm not particularly smart on this issue. I'm not studied. I don't know. I, so not really. And they were like, please. And I was like, all right. So I wrote an op-ed. And then from there, a publisher came to me and said, do you want to write a book about it? And I was like, oh, geez, not really. Not really at all. Um, I'm like, I'm not qualified to write a book. They're like, but you have a son and you're a dad. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote a book. Yeah. Well, it's a, but that's, I mean, that's what uh, uh, makes it a, a, it's a, a, a great idea, I think, is this idea of writing as a letter to your child, because obviously it gives you a chance to uh, talk about your personal life and your own upbringing, which is 
Uh, I, I've, there's a comedian in Britain called Robin Ince who writes about um, how many comedians have a trauma in their childhood, uh, losing a parent, which you, you lost your father when you were 12. Uh, also, your parents divorced as well, which is enough of a trauma in itself. Uh, and uh, your mother moved in with a, a woman so your fa- while your father was alive, so your father had to deal with that. So do you think that, do you think he speculates that possibly, I and mean, I don't really have any trauma in my life as far as, unless I've really He's got a dead wasp, you're just I've, sitting there. Got, I was a comedian before that there. happened, so I don't think that was, I think that's what took me out of comedy, that dead wasp. But uh, do you think, uh, I don't think it's obviously not all comedians have it, but that's you having to cope with, with that. I think, well, I think also what's interesting, which is, which I think, maybe a lot of people of our generation roughly can relate to is I think you talk about your father not being expressively, um, you know, affectionate, well, not affectionate, but not displaying love in the way that I think it sort of feels to me that our our parents' generation, the, the men were a little standoffish and, and, and masculine in that kind of 50s, 60s, 70s way. Uh, and our generation, I, are the opposite <laughs> that I never stop telling my children I love them like mm-hmm. 15 times a day to their massive annoyance already my daughter's already sick of it um yeah. I don't know whether that will create problems for, <laughs> for the next generation in some other way but we but it's in that shift in I think probably says as much about masculinity and the change in masculinity as anything and that our parents couldn't really our fathers couldn't really relate to us as kids but we are keener to do that. My dad couldn't. I mean, yeah. my dad, who who really was a, a, a nice man, a gentle man, and I think a kind man, but really had no uh, ability to relate to us as kids. Um, we didn't see him as much as I would have liked. He was, my parents were divorced, like you said, so we saw him like every other weekend. He worked a lot. Um, so some weekends we didn't see him even when we were there. We hung out with his wife, his new wife. And he was really reserved. I mean, he just wasn't capable, I don't think, of saying to his kids, I love you, or of giving a hug or anything like that. Um, didn't mean he didn't love us. I think he did. But yeah, he just wasn't really emotionally available. I think even to himself, I don't think he was just capable of of uh, understanding his own self particularly well. I mean, he died when he was young, he was 39. Mm. Um, And I know like I'm 49 now, when I was even into my forties, like I really felt like I was kind of struggling to to feel at home in my own skin. And I think he was the same. Yeah, no, well, I think that's, you know, I think it's it's interesting both of us writing about this subject uh, as we're, I'm a little over 50 or a little under 50. But you do get a very different perspective, I think, with each decade that goes by. I mean, I, I, and I'm, I'm certainly not writing mine from any degree of knowing what the fuck I'm doing or thinking <laughs> I'm a great guy. But I think it's it's sort of interesting that men are the, the men we see and the men we're seeing in both of our countries at the moment uh, who are being vociferously cross about something, that, but they don't really know what it's about. They're not prepared to really look into it. And it's nope. easier to blame women or immigrants or anyone other than themselves so they're not looking at the who who's to blame for their for the crisis of masculinity which is actually other men Um, and and maybe you will find as i have found that when you write a book 
to whom the target audience has no interest in reading. Yes. Book sales can suffer. Book sales can actually suffer. <laughs> well, we'll see. Mine isn't out yet, so we'll see. If that, I sort of, well, mine's called The Problem With Men, which wasn't the title I would have chosen, but I went with it at the end. That's what the publisher wanted to go with. But I sort of think, yeah, well, they're calling a book The Problem With Men. It might work in that they might pick it up and go, how dare you, and then read it and go, actually, it's sort of on your side, but we need to pull ourselves together. But I think, you know, more so from the, certainly from the tweets that I've had from people who, of course, who haven't read the book, who have decided what it is. Uh, yeah. I don't think they'll be buying it, and they could do with they could do with uh, reading it. I think because, but I, I, it, it is sort of fascinating, and and I and I wonder whether, you know, if enough people start talking about this, and enough part, enough people start thinking about it in this way. I mean, it does feel like the world is spiraling off in a direction that we're not going to be able to control, and it feels like the kind of masculinity that is that sort of uh, reactionary, backward-looking masculinity is is coming back into vogue but it i you know it, it it's all about uh expression isn't it it's all about not as men it's sort of we're blamed for a lot of stuff and rightly in a lot of ways but we've sort of been taught to bottle things up and taught not to express our emotions and as you, you talk in the book about um uh, how you, as a four-year-old you're told to be a man or whatever or man up because you're crying at a party and to mm -hmm. the, the absolute ridiculousness of that that you could be saying to a four-year-old child be a man <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, but you know you are you I remember the same things I remember you know I wasn't a, a I wasn't a sporty kid I was a clever kid I couldn't understand at school why the sporty kids were lauded and were allowed to show off about being sporty kids but if you went oh but I look I won this test or I got this cup for I <laughs> I've got a cup for being clever then that was a very I've got a ventriloquist dummy here look at me <laughs> and so you know the, even from that level you're, you're being you know men are being encouraged to to see themselves as this you know physical strong beings which not all of us are uh, mm. and to and to not uh, and for expression for crying and self-expression to be a bad thing and so it's not surprising that as grown men you're you're struggling to get beyond that. I mean, it's, it's, do you think your son? A, do you think your son will, who sounds like a nice young man from from your descriptions he's, in the book? He's fine. Yeah, he's fine. Would he listen to you though? Because that's what I thought. I remember talk, talking, trying to talk no. to my nephew about stuff when he was sixteen, and he it was impossible to get it through to him. No, 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 no. He will not listen to me. <laughs> I'm not. I don't know that that was ever the goal, really. I mean, it is, obviously. Like, I wrote a book to him, um, but he hasn't read it. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, I think the goal, is, the goal, as much as I was writing a book to my son, in a lot of ways, I was also writing it to myself. It was just like trying to understand and synthesize what I thought about all this stuff and how I wanted to be. Like, the title is A Better Man, but it's not directed at him necessarily it's directed at me more than anybody else just like figure your shit out dude and like try to try to just be better day to day and you know i'm like anybody i i i'm awful a lot of the time like i'm i'm all the things that i bemoan in the book like i get angry i withdraw i have a hard time expressing my emotions i have a hard time sometimes empathizing even with people like very close to me like I, you know i'm like i'm I'm a perfect example of what needs to change. And at least I feel like I understand that. And at least I feel like 
I'm aware of when I'm exhibiting bad behavior and that I can at least sort of try to be better. But I'm like on a daily basis, like, you know, I wouldn't say I'm an ogre, but I'm not great. <laughs> but, it's about, <laughs> but it's about acknowledging that, you know, I think men, you know, it's this, it's not just masculinity, it's about politics and everything. If, if you felt to be, you know, that you're lacking in some way, that you haven't, you're emotionally lacking, you're politically lacking, the way to change people's minds politically, it turns out, isn't just to tell them you're not allowed to do this anymore because all that happens is they bottle up. You can't say that anymore. You, what you have to do is convince them that they're incorrect about what they think. Otherwise, well, they bottle it up and then it comes out when they're, well, when, when out, they're allowed. At least to in my anything. country, you can't convince anybody of anything. Yeah. I mean, people are pretty well set by the time they reach even voting age. They're like, oh, fuck you. You don't know what you're talking about. And that's fine. I mean, I guess I say in the book and I... So many of what, so much of what I say in the book is so just like common sense to the point of stupidity. Um, but I, but I believe it too. Like if you can just sort of model the kind of person and the kind of man you want to be, like people in your life will see that um, they will respond to it, hopefully positively. If you're doing a good job, I mean, you'll feel better about yourself. The people in your life hopefully will like you a little bit better. And then, you know, drip by drip, like it does affect change. But I don't I don't have any illusions or pretenses that my behavior or this book is going to change anything for anybody. But I do think that the conversation that you're starting, that I'm starting is a valuable conversation to have. And that in a generation, two generations, maybe we will see some progress not you know not as a direct result of anything you or i do but just because of the cumulative conversations that people are having sure well i think you know but it is i think it's about i mean doing it through humor is a great way of doing it i think for men when i've when i've i did a book about uh like a male version of the vagina monologues but let talking humorously about that as well as getting serious stuff in allows i think gets through to men a lot more mm-hmm. more easily now if we're laughing we can laugh and go oh phew it wasn't just me who did that that's fine um but so yeah i mean i think it it, it is these tiny steps and these I, what i my book comes out of this whole international women's day thing where men go when's international men's day and that's sort of the starting point of it all and it was a joke you know it was a joke thing i did for a lot of years but i realized how much that is just a seed of all the problems we have now that is basically the soft drug asking when's international men's day and international women's day that leads to all the stuff we're seeing now you know as he is saying all lives matter rather than uh understanding what black lives matter is about or or you know all of those things and it's if we can just sort of start to realize that those guys <laughs> make the rest of us look bad and that we <laughs> that we, we we should be looking a different direction for who we're blaming i think for for all these things going wrong there's loads of things i love uh, love in your book i loved you because i i think it just takes you back because you're talking to your son but also you're being very honest about your own past um it sort of takes you back to how confusing that sort of that time of being 18 through to really for me about 45 if i'm absolutely honest um was just so confusing you didn't know what the rules were you didn't know you've got all these feelings bubbling around but you don't know how to use them and you don't know you want to sleep with people but you don't know how that goes that could (laughs) possibly happen and i love all the stuff you're talking about you know you i was the same and i think i'd probably a lot of maybe more sensitive men but maybe all men were the same in that you know girls were making it clear to me that they liked me and i was 
there's a thing where you talk about um, someone, a girl saying she, her hands cold, and you say, "Well, put it in your pocket," <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than taking that as a cue to hold her hand. Um, and you know, I, that just went, "Oh my god, that is so much my first ten years of, de- <laughs> of failing to date." Uh, and you know, but you forget how you know you get a bit better at those sort of things and a bit more understanding, and you forget about the terrible mistakes you make and the the people you hurt and the people who hurt you, and you get a bit better at it. But it's such uh, there's a lovely bit where you talk about the detachment of youth and and maturity being like you're tethered to the planet and your job is to sort of grab people and and hold them and bring them back down to earth which as a parent i think is uh, really it's a beautiful image but it's sort of it's it's also like very true that as we get older and we're just hopefully a little bit more secure um, yeah there comes a point in your life where and maybe it's that maybe it's that weird age between 18 and 45 it's it's different for everybody but i have to move my computer because i'm about to run out of battery oh my Um, goodness how exciting i know you can see much more of my mansion Um, nice how many other ladders have you got but he's got a hundred book ladders in it's all ladders we we it's all ladders everywhere it's it, it, it's a terrible terrible feature of the house to get anywhere or do anything you have to climb a ladder it's awful um I think there does come a point like when as you're getting a little bit older and independent, like you do sort of feel yourself drifting away from the planet and you feel sort of alienated from it. And then what maturity is, is sort of like bringing yourself back in like handhold by handhold until you sort of rejoin the rest of humanity. But it's a journey. Everybody has to go on that journey. But again, I think, but also what what I see and what I fear, I see a lot in middle-aged men, some of my friends and some other just guys who, you know, life, isn't as exciting as it was when they're 25 and they have a, they get they get divorced or you know something goes wrong and they go more right wing and they get more into conspiracy theories and they basically go nuts and you yep. can see them go nuts and that's the other end of it you know it's it's sort of it feels like certainly in your 50s up to your 60s and 70s we should be able to hold it all together and be a, be a solid grounding for the the younger people in our lives but it does feel that that's my fear is the the, the friends you see who suddenly go off off the planet. I suppose that's the same thing. That's what you're talking about, isn't it? Is this just drifting away out of? Yeah, some <laughs> people don't. Never, some people never find their way back. Yeah, yeah. It, or, or for some people, like you know, I've got. I have similar friends, uh, male and female, who are in their 40s, 50s, who just at a certain point just decide they're gonna, you know, go someplace else, some other reality, and that's where they choose to live. And it's not great. It's really not great. No. No, it's a it's a it's a weird thing, but it's you know it's it's and th- there's a lot of positive stuff in there. And I do you know I I well I think I, I I obviously get the stuff as a, a parent. Your kids are older than mine, but um you know I have just sleepless nights. You know you worry about those things. For you to have been such close proximity to such a terrible event, you know, and you're two two or three schools away that that's happening to young kids your age. But you that's the thing, you know, that it's you can't ever quite escape that fear you know i think you talk about the nostalgia for the future and stuff but i i um you know i can even if something nice is happening (laughs) something happy i'm on a beautiful walk with my kids we're picking blackberries and the sun shining it just feels like that bit in a film before you're the children are kidnapped and sexually assaulted (laughs) and that's all that's going on in my head is yeah this is too nice they're gonna get run over they're gonna die they're gonna get it's and so i'm not unable to enjoy fully the nice things because I'm worrying about it. But then, you know, the, for, for some people, it, it's the reality, you know, you, you know, it's unlikely, but then you know how close 
you have come, you know, to experience something at such close quarters and to send your kids to school on that same day and get your kids back or send them to school the next day, uh, mm-hmm. knowing that that's happened. I mean, you still know it's it's not the kind of thing that happens a lot, but it's still, yeah. I mean, it's it's there's so many things in the world now, and that that. I mean, I just had a sleepless night last night. It was mainly because I drank whiskey before bed, but I, and then and then woke up and read about the, <laughs> the presidential debate, and then couldn't sleep and worried about the world. But you know, it's it, it you can understand why people, um, why you know fear can grip people and why people want to have guns and want. I mean, it's it seems all of these things. See, with the, the gun control in America, there's no way that's ever going to change beyond something so bad happening that all the guns the worst thing has already happened yeah, yeah. it happened six miles from my house sure. like nothing and then there was a there was a shoot you know there, the, the worst mass shooting in american history was in las vegas a dude was just at the top of a hotel and just spraying a concert crowd 500 people were shot yeah not all of them died obviously but 500 people were shot and nothing changed that's the thing. I mean, nothing is going to change in this country regarding gun laws. It's absolutely maddening. And there's a deep sort of there's deep sort of historical reasons why that should be the, why that is the case, not why it should be the case. Um, it's just very, very, very hard to persuade enough Americans to change things to get something done but it does it does have a lot to do with the fear that you're describing the fear that when you're out there pick, picking blackberries you know a group of marauders is going to come and take your blackberries yeah. and you know and your children i guess but the blackberries <laughs> the black are also very valuable uh and it's very hard i guess for a lot of people to sort of overcome those fears and just understand that life generally precedes a pace and the tragedies that happen happen rarely but but well, there's one happening right now your kids it, it, have just this, been this eaten tragedy by is never ending <laughs> this is a never-ending tragedy my two fucking dog um yeah i mean there's just no there's and one of the things about masculinity is like so much of it we think is predicated on strength when the opposite it's true it's predicated on fear sure yeah well i think you're right you know i don't think either our books are are going to change anything (laughs) 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 but that's you know but it still it still feels good to put them out into the world absolutely and and do our best and you know i hope i hope people will uh, read your book it's a it's a great read it's it's i've read it in two or three sittings it was um uh there's there's a lot of great stuff about it and especially you're scared of worms i don't think that's in the book i think that was in a podcast that's not in the book it actually yeah, might be it is actually it? might be is it okay i know well i also and to, and i think just to, i think uh, talking about your younger self and your sense of humor i I sort of thought I, that thing when you're, you're young and you're sarcastic and obviously a lot of your comedic personality when you started was sort of based on this sarcastic mm-hmm. uh just dismissive of everything <laughs> And and again, I think it's interesting that as an older guy, you're sort of beyond that. So I, I watched. So weirdly, there was some some like thing I did like uh, when I was back in '95, where the, the internet was just starting, and because we had a website on our TV show, they obviously came to me to talk about the internet, 
and what was on it and stuff. And I was just, you know, it was all just me being sarcastic about absolutely everything. Talking is just because it's a way of defending. It's again, it's that defense, isn't it? It's an emotional defense. It's a way of if I don't admit to liking anything, <laughs> then I can't be caught out. But it's the sort it's of same not- thing as as you get now in politics is is. You know, people with conspiracy theories like if I, you know, I'm, I can't, I, I don't want to seem gullible, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to be cynical about everything, or I don't want to, I don't want to be tricked by something, so I'm going to believe even more ridiculous stuff. And but it is that it's a very, I was, you know, I, I completely um, empathised with 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 that. Looking back at myself, I mean, it's just I, I hate watching myself from those years because it's just all of this sarcastic tone of voice and uh, and I just know inside there's a guy who's going I don't I have no fucking clue about what I think about anything so I'm going to be sarcastic about people liking Star Trek on the internet it's like being Wonder Woman where you have those wrists that just can deflect any bullet that's coming in that's sort of like what sarcasm is it's like nothing's going to break through um, and if and if I just act like nothing affects me, people will think I'm strong and cool and whatever. And inside, you're just dying yeah. all the time. You're just a mess all the time. So yeah, I had to change. Like I just, I consciously had to change my just who I was as an actor and as a comedian. I just, I had to do it because I felt like I was, I felt like I was drowning in sarcasm. I felt like I was drying, just drowning in my own like you know stone yeah. persona. But that, I mean, even because my character wasn't quite that, but with you, it was sort of exactly, it was what you'd based your career on, really, wasn't it? So that was a big move to to make that decision to move away from that. But it wasn't because I didn't, really, I didn't honestly, I didn't feel like I had a choice. Okay. It was sort of like, I just wasn't that person anymore. I didn't want to be anyway. So I was just like, I got to, I got to figure something else out. And what I, what I figured out was, oh, I can be, earnest and pretentious and that's gonna really really take the career in the only direction uh well i don't know i mean i so i would put it's the, it's the it's the comedy i love is the kind of comedy of honesty and the and there you know actually and and in life you find this if you're open and if you're honest things go a lot better for you i think that's the that's oh. that was my that was my <laughs> that was my realization in my 30s sadly that it was just much better to be honest with the people you came across about whatever it was, because of course once you're honest, then they then make a decision based on that. If you're if you're in any way putting in any kind of pretense, I don't think I was ever like a liar with people. I was always sort of honest, but not emotionally honest. I think. And you certainly, uh, you certainly were honest about your feelings for Run Fat Boy Run. Oh. Like, that was very uh, very. I'm going to watch. Very it. admirable. I thought. I'm going to watch it again. And, you don't uh, have to. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't want you to suffer through it. I'm going to watch it again. I'm going to watch it again on Twitch. And uh, as a director's, <laughs> I'm going to do a director's commentary of it uh, and see if I. And then I'm going to send that to you to let you know. What... <laughs> In all the ways that it doesn't work. Very much appreciate it. Oh, I'm glad you haven't. You know, I'm glad we've just uh, skirted over it and it hasn't got, it hasn't got into you. It really doesn't. I, I, I actually don't mind at all. It's hilarious. I, it was mainly for my audience that I mentioned it because some of them are. To be honest, Simon Pegg's done a lot of worse films since then. Uh, well, that, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That you means were, a lot. You, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was that film that turned the tap of him just like, hey, actually, I can do, oh, I can do bad films now. Oh, I can turn this tap a bit further. 
he's done he's done loads he's done loads of bad films that one he did with the Monty Python guys was really bad that was a bad one and that's got Monty Python in it how can you compete with that I don't even know what that is was it called Everything Happens really they were they it was it was all of the surviving Monty Python guys at that time were in it as was it Eddie Izzard was in it as a dog? Am I right? What someone in the chat room will tell me about absolutely it? Anything. Absolutely a anything. Absolutely anything. 2015 yeah, my comedy directed yeah. by Terry Jones. I've never heard of it. Yeah. Don't watch. Don't watch it. Oh, I won't. I'm going to watch I'm that, and then I'm going to watch Run Fat Boy Run, and then uh, absolutely. Yeah, anything. mine will mine will be great in comparison, and that's better than Monty Python. So, what can you say? Text. I've never Text. written a film, so you know, fuck me up the ass with. Mm-hmm. A, penis-shaped carrot. Um, let's ask you some emergency questions to get out of this uh, <laughs> this uh, awkwardness that I've created myself. I do it on purpose to see what will happen, and it just makes me feel bad. Uh, when was the last time that you saw a donkey? Uh, probably about a year and a half ago. Yeah, probably about a year and a half ago. A real donkey, cartoon donkeys I see all the time because that's the symbol for the Democratic Party here okay, yeah. in the States. But a real donkey, probably about a year and a half ago. That's my donkey. Is, what, does your donkey have a, a voice as well? He does. Um, <laughs> Why can't I die? Why can't yeah. I die? That's because that's not my donkey from when I was um, four or five years old. I did my first comedy shows with these finger puppets. But I've obviously pulled off his ears. He's not really recognisable as a donkey anymore. No, uh, it looks more like a bird to me. Yeah, he's come back as a, as a donkey. Um, that wasn't why I asked the question. Um, have you ever met a shepherd? No. You? Um, I mean, I must have done. I grew up in the countryside. I went to see... Uh, when I moved to Hertfordshire, some of our neighbours invited us up to see some lambs that had just been born. Uh I don't believe the woman who showed Jenny. I don't think she was a shepherd, but she cared for sheep. So I'm going to count it. I would count that. That's as I feel like that's as close as you're likely going to ever get. We to saw a we saw we saw a lamb being born. We went up knowing they were going to come, and one slipped out while we were there. Was it gross? Yeah, awful. It's worse than a worm. <laughs> it's like a it's like a massive worm that then goes and then a sting jumps out. It's like an alien inside a worm. Sounds terrible. Yeah. And then and then to think, you know, in six months you're going to eat that. Yeah. No, but it's unavoidable. That is. What else have I got? Who is the most famous person you've been in a lift with? Or an ele- is that an elevator? Do you call them elevators yeah. in America? That you didn't elevator. get into the lift with the elevator with? Oh, well, here's, here's something that's kind of funny. Yeah. I was in an elevator and I was in a terrible mood. Just a, I don't even remember why. Um, and I was in an office building coming from some meeting, maybe I'd had a fight with my wife. I don't know. I'm just angry. The doors open and standing there is Dolly Parton. <laughs> and I remember, and I remember like I either visibly or, or audibly said something like, "Ugh," like now this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and Dolly Parton will remember that. I was in a lift with Michael Ian Black. <laughs> We never shit. shared the same elevator, but she was getting oh. on as I was getting on. No, that counts. That, was, counts. that counts. Oh, I was just, I was just outraged that she would dare show her face while I was in such a foul mood. <laughs> um, hey, you do cameo, right? You do the cameo <laughs> thing, yeah. So people can, um, 
Yes, this is quite a new thing in the UK. I got Ice T to do one for my stone clearing podcast. I got Ice T to, to uh, I told him I cleared stones and if he had any advice, and he was great. He was brilliant, mm-hmm. but he cost three hundred pounds, right? Oh, that's a lot. That's a lot, but it's Ice T. So you know, yeah, no, I, I'm not saying it's too much. That yeah. sounds about right for yeah. Ice T. I mean, it's but what I find it so cameo. If people don't know, is where you can. Uh, a, a celebrity, you go to a website and you can ask a celebrity to send you a message of any kind, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Usually birthday greetings and stuff for a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and But what I find interesting is the is the price point. Oh, uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. So your price point is about £70. Pounds. Uh-huh. So I could I could have... Uh, you could have about three iced teas yeah, for one. I could have four. Me. I could have four U's for one iced tea. Oh, right. My math wasn't very good. It wasn't very good. You're not four times better than Ice-T, mate. And don't start thinking you are. You're you're four times. Well, Ice-T values himself, but does he get the the kickback that you get? Do you... I'm interested in that. I'm just interested in how you make the decision about where you're going to pitch that price point. It's trial trial and error. Is it? Yeah. So I started at 50 bucks. Yeah. And then I went up to 75 bucks. Um, I'm looking at my cameo right now. So Chris, Kristen, who's turning 41, yeah, uh, has a son named Jackson. It's his birthday, so she wants me to wish him a happy birthday. I'm gonna, you know, happy, yeah. happy to do it. Sure. 85 bucks, talk to like, two minutes of work. Happy to do it. Good. If I went every week and just asked you to do ever more humiliating things and put them up on this podcast, would you? Would you do them? For you know, I don't think you understand my tolerance for shame. <laughs> Very, very high. I mean, you read my book. You yeah. understand. Like, I, it's almost impossible to humiliate me at yeah. this point. Like, anything you want, sure. Yeah, yeah cool. absolutely. I might do that. I mean, the thing is, like, if it doesn't require, if, if it doesn't require props, like, that's where I'm going to get tripped up. Like, if I have to actually, like, go out and, like, pick something up sure. or, like, think about it, yeah. then I feel like no deal. But if I can just, like, say humiliating things, okay. sure. Well, I might take you up on that. I had an idea, which I think someone else has done, because there's quite there. There's some good people. I mean, you're on there, and that's cheap, man. That is, I think that's cheap. I think you deserve. I think you should be paid more. Um, but you could put together. You could write a script, a feature film script, and have 400 big celebrities <laughs> in it, and it would be really cheap if you could. So if, you, if you could write something which was just all of them, like they could be giving you instructions off a screen or something as someone ran around a maze or something or just they're just on the phone or we can just nowadays you could just take your take your take you and put you in a different situation couldn't you once you've captured your image you could have you saying that anywhere that would be yeah, quite it's a very good idea i mean if the you know most films now are about 90 minutes right yeah. each cameo you figure on average a minute to a minute and a half you yeah. don't need that many people no. maybe 50 people because you're doing half of it yeah right and then you got, yeah, it's a great idea. Then there must be something in the terms of conditions. Because if you put it up and then you go, here we have a film, Ice T, <laughs> Michael Ian Black. Uh, there's some, there's some, there's like. Uh, the guy from Jersey Shore. <laughs> some wrestler you, you have, kind of you heard have, of. Some people like, you know, I, there's people on there who are five pounds. So it's five pounds. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, you could get a lot of those. I mean, they aren't, they're basically just some people, but they would still, <laughs> that would pad out a bit. Right, and then for your climax, you have M- you have iced tea yeah. for your climax coming in and yeah. giving you know giving you the 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 solution to the mystery. David Hasselhoff's on there. He's only about. I mean, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna put some more of these people in my shows. And I'm gonna see how much Hasselhoff is because he's, he's got to be expensive. He was less than a iced tea, 
There's, I'm trying really? to think I've seen. There's someone who was quite... The he's $350, oh, he's David. Quite, that is quite high. He, but he's the, yeah, that's, you know, that's worth it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For Hassel. No, these are bargain basement prices. Uh, there's some great people in here. Yeah. Johnny Bench, who you wouldn't know, but very famous catcher for the Cincinnati Reds, 160 bucks. It's good. Great. It's great. good stuff. Um, I just do mine for nothing. When people email me and ask me to do a happy birthday, I just do it for nothing. Do you want to guess how much Smokey Robinson is? Oh, I bet it's not as much. I think it's going to $150 US dollars. You're not far off. $209. Yeah. This is a great game. My friends and I have played this game before. <laughs> what, what, what people charge for cameo. But like there's some people on there who are just, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of that actor who's my wife's loves. Oh, I don't know. No, I don't know your she's, wife. But she's on like, a, there's a few that are on like $1,000 or $2,000. Um, yeah. the top ones, the, uh, uh, one of the Cardassian lot are in, are in there, oh, sure. but, uh, I don't want them. Don't want them. But, uh, what's their name? What's the, what's the actress who's in, uh, night school with, uh, Kevin Hart, uh, Tiffany Haddish, Tiffany Haddish is on Tiffany Haddish. My wife loves Tiffany Haddish. It's about $3,000 to get Tiffany Haddish. Wait, I have to see that. I was in a show with Tiffany years ago when nobody knew who she was, including me. She was always very nice. She's, and, I, I like her. I think she's great. Uh, I would think she wouldn't need to do... I mean, you know, I can understand why you're doing it, Michael, but... She's not on Cameo. Oh, okay. She was for a bit. Maybe she's come off. I think she understood why am, why am I doing this. <laughs> there's no... There's literally no upside to me for me to do this. For me, there's a tremendous upside, which is $85. Yeah. Well, I might do it. I don't know if I'm able to do it under a... Uh, aliases would you notice if like one a week was coming the extra was coming did you get enough that you wouldn't see i would, have, I would have no idea who it is yeah. you, you you could say your name is anything okay cool. and i would have no idea all right no, well, i won't i'm not gonna there might be that. you know if you're if you're like could you wish me luck in moving every rock from my 35 acre property over yeah. to the boundary i might have some idea yeah i'm not i'm not i'm cleverer than that i'm not gonna do i'm not gonna, i'm definitely not gonna do it so don't you don't even have to look out for it because it's not it's not going to happen. If anyone gets in touch, says my favourite film is can you can you do uh, half of the dialogue from Run Fat Boy Run for me? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that yeah. won't be me. That's all I'm saying. It won't be me. So look, I've I've wasted enough of your time. I've been rude enough to you already. I'm a massive fan of yours. You've kissed uh, Bradley Cooper. We haven't talked about that. Made love with Bradley. Yeah, kiss. Come on. It didn't stop with kissing. Okay. It started with kissing yeah. and then went very quickly. Yeah. It escalated very, very That's quickly. It's pretty. It's Wet Hot American Summer, yeah. Which is a show I saw without, I think we saw that on Netflix without having seen the original film. It's quite a confusing conceit. It's really good, but it's one of those shows that took me a couple of episodes to decide. To have any clue what was going on. Well, I th but I think that's the best kind of show. All my favourite shows is taking me a couple of episodes to understand what's going on. With that show, it's because it's a very American experience. It's about the summer camp. And I, I did work at a summer camp, so I, I am aware of it. Uh, but in the UK, we wouldn't really be that much aware of it. But it's a mixture of adults playing kids and kids playing kids. Mm -hmm. And and it's quite it's a surreal. It takes some flights of fancy there, doesn't it? Oh, Where, many flights yeah. of fancy. Yeah, it's it's I mean, it's just the best for me the best kind of silly absurdism sure. the original film wet hot american summer came out in 2000 and it's got really a fantastic cast, uh, cast. including 
Bradley Cooper and Elizabeth Banks and Janine Garofalo and Molly Shannon and Paul Rudd. And, uh, and then we did a series of it called 10 Years Later, or called First Day of Camp. Uh, and we did that. We, so it's a little confusing. I'll explain it very quickly. In the film, as you just described, the original film, we were all in our mid to late 20s playing 16 and 17 year olds. And that was part of the conceit of the humor. Yeah. 10 years later, or so maybe even 15 years later, we made a television series called First Day of Camp, which takes place the first day of that summer. So we're all in our mid to late thirties playing the same characters who are now slightly younger. <laughs> and then the following year, we did a follow-up to that called 10 Years Later, which takes place 10 years later. So we're then in our like late thirties, forties playing mid twenties uh and it's crazy it's a crazy crazy. crazy. and a lot of those guys i I also play i play my own character and then in 10 years later i also play president george hw bush okay yes so that gives you some sense of the scope (laughs) (laughs) but a lot of those guys were the guys you started out so you started out in this sketch group when you were in your 20s and those a lot of those guys you'll see um yeah well you know that in all these American shows, there's a, we're 11 of you in this sketch group, something like that, or 10 or 11, mm-hmm. you're right. And uh, you've, pretty much everyone's gone on to be a recognisable face. Done really well, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we started when I was 17, it started. Amazing. Yeah. And then we had our own TV show when I was, by the time I was 21, Yeah, maybe. So, yeah, we got really lucky. Do you feel that's lucky? Because I sort of feel, because we had a TV show by the time we were about 25, and mm-hmm. I feel it was way too early, and I kind of wish it had happened <laughs> 15 years later. But just because, in terms of having your an early thing be a reasonably big success, you sort of don't yeah. understand how lucky you are to have that a bit. Oh no, we don't get me wrong. We totally screwed it up. Please don't misunderstand <laughs> me. We self-immolated at the earliest possible opportunity. Cool. Please don't misunderstand me. But <laughs> it was still very lucky and cool and and i have some great memories of it and then also some there was some trauma associated with it as well yeah so i can i can relate to that as well look we've lived mm-hmm. the same life we don't need to talk about it anymore nah. um same <laughs> thank you so much for your patience with me and thank you for talking to me uh do buy this fantastic book i think it's available now in the uk a better man um you will love it then you can buy the problem with men and then you can judge and then maybe we can set up some kind of uh, competition online to find out which book was best. I think it's yours. I'm giving you my vote, and I think you should give you your vote. So you're two oh, nil. Of course. Two I mean, nil. having not read yours yet, yeah. I will give mine my my, yeah. my own yeah. the vote. Okay. That is that that is fair. Um, and do check out Obscure second series Frankenstein, but read do Joe do Jude the Obscure first as well. It's it's poor old Jude the Obscure. Oh, what a sad sack! What a sad sack that guy was. <laughs> Just. Not a happy life. I really like the bit in the first chapter where the school t- teacher's leaving and uh, he says, I can't. It's, you wouldn't understand, he says to this 12-year-old boy and then <laughs> he explains it and, yeah, and you go, yeah, well, he would have, he'd understand that. It's not... <laughs>
You completely <laughs> would understand. Uh, it's lovely. Uh, it's it's brilliant. You'll enjoy it. Thank you. So I know you're doing another one of these later on. I don't know what time. What time well, is it in uh, Connecticut at the moment? Well, it's it's early, four twenty in the afternoon. Okay, I have another event at eight that nobody okay, will be at. So it'll be great. Got a bit of time. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm hoping to uh, do lots more uh, interviews with people in America if America still exists in two months. Well, it will. It just might be. It might just be balkanized. Yeah. There might be several Americas. Yeah. Uh, if there's a civil war going on, do you think people will still want to talk to me on your podcast? podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> then I don't mind. I don't mind about the civil war. Uh, look, you've been fantastic. I hope you've enjoyed it, ladies and gentlemen. Give it up for the amazing Michael Ian Black. We're back next week. Uh, we're talking to Stevie Martin, not that one, but she's fantastic. Thank you very much. Goodbye. You have been listening to Rahalastapa with... <clears throat> Sorry. You have been listening to Rahalastapa with me, Rich Terring, and my guest, Michael Ian Black. Thank you to Pest for providing the music for this podcast. I am indebted to my friend and producer and the man who always spells the guest names wrong, so he has to re-upload everything. Chris Evans, not that one, or that one, or any of the politician ones, just he's the Welsh one. Uh, thank you very much to everyone, Acast, Bridge Comic Guide, etc. You are all lovely, thank you for your high band fan work, Ian Twitch, thank you for that. Uh, this is a Fuzz, Go Faster, Stripe.com and Sky Potato production. Head to twitch.tv slash rkherring for loads of free entertainment in inverted commas. Some of it's good. And do check out, I think, Ali and Herring's Twitch of Fun is the peach of the bunch. It's best to see it on video, because, my God, the ventriloquism skills involved. I can't even say ventriloquism when I'm moving my mouth. What chance do I have of being a good ventriloquist? They're amazed anyway, so check it out. Yes, hello, it's me, Ali. Just check it out. Why is my voice gone weird? It's because you're not here. I'm in the docks. Let me out of the docks. I just want to get out of the docks.